Tupelo, Mississippi is the largest city in the northeast region of the state, with a population of around 40,000. In 1934, it became the first city to receive power from the Tennessee Valley Authority. But just two years later, in 1936, the city would be ravaged by what remains one of the deadliest tornadoes in American history. The city was later rebuilt to become a hub of American furniture manufacturing industries, and today it is the smallest city in the United States that is the headquarters of more than one bank with over $10 billion in assets. And what is probably most famously known about Tupelo is that it is the birthplace of the king of rock and roll, Elvis Presley. Like many other cities across the state, Tupelo has that small town feeling where everybody knows everybody. And it is an overall extremely nice city to live in in the state of Mississippi. However, it has had its share of horrific tragedies. For example... In the summer of 1986, a brutal murder of an innocent 18-year-old girl rocked the city of Tupelo to its core. Today, I'm going to be telling you about the murder of Amy Clayton. In the summer of 1986, Amy Clayton was 18 years old and had just graduated from high school in May. And she was looking forward to attending Itawamba Community College on a cheerleading scholarship in the fall. She lived at home with her parents, Carol and Joe Clayton, along with her two older brothers, Rob and Brad Clayton. The Clayton family had spent much of July 1986 taking turns caring for their grandmother, who was recovering after a fall. And on Thursday, July 31st, that's where Amy was for the day, at her grandmother's. She was there until her mom arrived at 6 to relieve her, and her mom was actually going to stay the night with the grandmother that night to take care of her. So after Amy's mom got there, Amy told her mother and her grandmother bye, and she left her grandmother's house at around 6.30 p.m. And she headed straight home where she met her brother Brad. Her and Brad then went to a nearby gas station, and they got some soft drinks and some gas for Amy's car, and then they went back to the house where Amy cooked dinner. Both of her older brothers were on a softball team, and later on that night, they actually had a game. Their older brother, Rob, arrived home at around 7.30 p.m. with another one of their teammates, but they were only at the home for about 30 minutes before they left to go practice for the game. But Brad stayed home until around 9 o'clock, but before Brad, like, headed out to the softball field, he actually asked Amy if she wanted to go to the softball field with him. But Amy declined, saying that she had planned to go on a late-night jog, which was something she routinely did, so this wasn't out of the ordinary. So Brad said okay and left Amy at the house by herself, and he headed to the field. Meanwhile, across town, Amy's father, Joe Clayton, was getting off work. And when he got off work, he headed straight to the softball fields where he planned to watch his sons play that night. And the games ended pretty late that night, so Amy's father and her brothers didn't arrive back home until around 11.30 p.m. And they became immediately worried when they got to the house and they saw that Amy was not there. So Joe called Amy's mother, Carol, who actually left the grandma's house immediately. And she came straight home and they all began calling around to see if like any of Amy's friends had seen her or talked to her. But nobody had spoken with her or seen her that afternoon. So that's when the Claytons notified the police that she was missing. 
and they all began searching for her. They all went like on the usual routes that she would take when she would go jogging. I mean, they looked literally everywhere for her, but they didn't find her or they didn't find any clues as to where she might be. After a long, restless night of searching for Amy, Joe Clayton called his brother, Jerry Lee Clayton, who was the chancery clerk at the time, and he told him what was going on about how Amy was missing. And it wasn't long after this phone call that Jerry Lee's phone rang again, but this time it was the police. A local man was taking his morning jog around Legion Lake, and it was about half a mile from Amy's house, and he discovered something incredibly horrific. He discovered the body of a deceased female laying close to the water. And the reason the police called Amy's uncle, Jerry Lee, was because they needed someone from the family to come see if the body that was found actually belonged to Amy. And when Jerry Lee arrived, he knew immediately that it was his niece, Amy Clayton. So police began combing the area where Amy's body was found, and while looking for evidence as to what might have happened to Amy, police found her shoes and socks lying near her body. One of the shoelaces had been removed from her shoe and was used to bind her wrists together. And nearby, they located a blood-soaked white sleeveless t-shirt and a pair of JCPenney boxer shorts. Dr. Thomas Bennett, the state medical examiner, performed the autopsy on Amy, and he stated that the time of her death was between 10 p.m. and midnight the previous day, so the night that she went out jogging. He also noted that she suffered 34 stab wounds and had been sexually assaulted. Additionally, there were bruises from the impact of a blunt object on her head and various other places of her body. So, after the news reported the crime, tips started coming into the police department. Officers received descriptions of, like, a suspicious man who had been in the area on the day of Amy's murder. A neighbor of the Claytons actually claimed of witnessing this suspicious man walking around their home at around 10.30 p.m. on Thursday night, the night Amy went missing. He described this man as being approximately 5 foot 4 with a dark beard and dark hair. He was wearing a headband, a light-colored t-shirt, and dark pants. Maybe the headband made him look suspicious. <clears throat> I don't know. With this information, uh, this neighbor helped develop a composite sketch that was published in the North Mississippi Daily Journal on August the 2nd. And it wasn't long before police found a person of interest, a guy named Randy Bevel, who was 30 years old at this time, and he was from Pontotoc County. Randy Bevel at this time was also on probation for burglary charges. That July night of 1986, he had been living on his sister's couch in Tupelo. And on the afternoon of July 31st, he had called his ex-girlfriend, Iris, whom he had not spoken to for months because Iris was actually afraid of him. Like, so of course, like when he called Iris, like she didn't answer. And he called her about four or five times. And like I said, she declined each call. He then decided to, you know, make the next logical step, I guess, and drive over to Iris's apartment where he parked his truck, like, in a nearby parking lot of, like, the Parkway Baptist Church, and then he, like, proceeded to walk into the woods behind where Iris lived so he could, like, hide out and watch her apartment to see if anybody stopped by. Suspicious, I'd say. After a while, though, with nobody showing up at Iris's home, Randy just walked right up to her door and started banging on her door, begging to be let in. And she obviously refused to open the door. And after nearly 20 minutes, she then decided to call the police. But by the time the police got there, he had already left. 
Just two days after finding out Amy had been murdered, police had received enough information on Randy Bevel to want to question him. And a deputy that was patrolling the county ran into Randy and told him that he had to come with him to the police department. And of course, Randy did not want to do that. But after the deputy reassured him that he was not under arrest at this point, Randy did agree to ride with this officer to the station. Randy got put in the police, got taken to the police department and got put in an interview room where like detectives and officers were in this room with him, questioning him like they were asking about his whereabouts, where he was on July 31st. And then the officers proceeded to ask him about like the disturbance call that they received from his ex-girlfriend, Iris. And he did admit that he parked his truck at that church by his ex's house. And he said he did harass her, saying that he was angry at the time and he wanted to make sure no one else was going over there to see The questioning by investigators quickly took a turn when the officers asked Randy if he had been drinking that night. And um, Randy explained that, yeah, he he had been drinking. But this combined with the fact that he had also been driving and harassing his ex meant that he had been violating his probation terms. So the officers placed him under arrest at this point and while they held him in custody, they searched his truck and they discovered that his seat covers had been washed and removed and were laying on the floorboard. Um, the officers then visited Miss Hilda Wilder, who was Randy Bevel's sister, who he'd been living with at the time. And according to her, on the night of July 31st, Randy had not come home yet when she had went to bed at around 10 p.m. But he was on the couch the next morning when she left for work at 6 a.m. She then provided the officers with a blue sleeveless t-shirt that belonged to Randy, and it was like the exact same style as the white one that they found at the crime scene. She even explained to these officers that Randy also owned a white shirt, identical to the blue one that she had given them, but she then stated that she hadn't seen that shirt since like Thursday. So later that month, on August 21st, a hearing was held for Randy for his arrest for violating his probation terms. And he was found guilty and sentenced to five years in prison. Then, just eight days later, on the 29th, evidence was presented to the grand jury and Randy was indicted for capital murder, rape, and kidnapping of Amy Clayton. And his trial began on March 30th of 1987. Among the evidence that was presented during Randy's trial was the blood type found on Amy's body and the t-shirt from the crime scene. The blood type was O, which matched both Amy and Randy. A hair specialist from the Mississippi State Crime Lab named Joe Andrews presented his findings on the hair found at the scene, and he concluded that the hair found on Amy matched Randy's pubic hair, and the hair found on both Amy's shirt and the white t-shirt that was found at the scene was a match to Randy's chest hair. Multiple witnesses testified to seeing a man fitting Randy Bevel's description in the area that night wearing a light-colored shirt and dark pants. And one man who was like riding in a French truck that night in that neighborhood said that he witnessed an older man and a younger female having a conversation under a street light on the night of the 31st. And the clothes that he described the female wearing matched the clothes Amy had on. Additionally, he said that the man he saw talking to the young female had on a light colored sleeveless t-shirt, which fit the description of the one found at the crime scene. This young man identified Randy Bevel in court as being the man who he saw that night. Another witness who testified was a prisoner who was actually incarcerated with Randy. And he testified that Randy admitted to him that he had sex with quote unquote the girl and then killed her. So with all this information, the jury was sent back to deliberate. And when they returned, they returned with a guilty verdict 
for the charge of capital murder and unanimously found that Randy should be sentenced to death. So Randy Bebel was convicted of capital murder in the death of 18-year-old Amy Clayton. But immediately after his trial and conviction, Randy made his first appeal, and he argued that the evidence used against him in court during his trial was insufficient, and he specifically targeted the hair analysis findings, which honestly is something that is like wildly controversial still to this day when used in court. He also stated that the blood type, type O, that was found is the most common blood type, and it should not have been used as sufficient evidence, tying him to the scene of the crime. And lastly, he argued that the guy that was incarcerated with him, like, shouldn't have been able to testify against him in court. And shockingly, Randy's appeal was successful in reversing his conviction. However, in 1992, he was tried again and was once again convicted on capital murder charges and sentenced to death. Randy Bebel died in custody at Parchman on death row at 58 years old in April of 2017, and the cause of his death is still unknown to this day. 